Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Yep, and it is Wednesday, the 11th of August. I mean, really, Stuart Lohman, it feels like a Thursday already, doesn't it? We've only had two days back at work. I was going to say these short weeks, Alec, they do play with our minds as uh, hard workers. Eh? And uh, a really good show coming up for you. Magnus Haystick, uh, who's our Wednesday evening guest, uh, said he's just arrived back from another country, the Western <laughs> Cape. So <laughs> we'll hear what he's got to say about that. I'm sure he's going to repeat that little quip a little bit later in the show. But what are people reading on biznews.com today, Stuart? Uh, just published on dot .com is the Digital Vibes uh, SIU report, Alec. Um, and then our colleague Nadja Swat has put some of Paul O'Sullivan's quotes into that. Um, so that's running on the site Top of the pops. Yes. Other topics are ESCOM, Alec. There was a CSR report. Uh, load shedding is as bad as apparently 2007. So as much as the rate is seen as this sort of um, savior, he's got a lot of problems. And they're still coming through. And tied with that was the Madupi explosion, which is not going to make his job any easier on the uh, load shedding side. And then there's a piece by Jonathan Katzen-Edinburgh on the cabinet reshuffle and how a crisis drove a reshuffle, but it hasn't really driven any reform. So we haven't really moved anywhere despite a few new faces in government. So, so those are the big stories that uh, we've covered on Biz News today, and we'll be talking about them today as well. Uh, what's going on with the uh, Biz News TV on YouTube, Nadia? So similar themes. The top video of the day is of yesterday's flash briefing, which covered ESCOM's Madupi power station explosion, uh, Spoo Shabalala's resignation as CEO of Adapt IT, and another postponement of Zuma's arms deal trial. So it's a nice way to catch up on your news Monday to Thursday. And uh, the video of your interview with Stephen Nathan yesterday did very well. I, I find that he has a really great, fresh perspective to always apply to like what's been happening. And then another video that's always also done very well is the interview that we did with uh, doctors Mladla and Kanyaki and uh, Professor Colleen Aldis about ivermectin. That we did. Very well watched. That I did. That you did. Well done. Yeah, yes. it is well watched and, uh, and good, strong uh, on the ground. Isn't it lovely to get that practical feel that you get from the doctors in the hospitals? They're busy it with it. It was amazing. And- yeah, they spoke about their real experience actually using it to treat. And it was, yeah, it was very moving. It's a little bit like that with Stephen Nathan. He's the man who started 10X. He's left 10X. He's independent now. He he gives us some some wonderful insights every Tuesday. But Stu, uh, what are people listening to on our podcasts? Alec, it seems those themes pull across the the platforms at Biz News. Um, not his extended conversation with Avamectum Trio. A 40, 40 minute uh, conversation has uh, been very well listened to on the radio. Um, just behind Peter, Peter Haynes' interview yesterday, we obviously republished from the from the interviews you do in the studio here. Uh, that's in second. And then Nathan's piece on the SOEs and how government and SOEs should probably do less rather than more. And often on Biz News uh, Radio, you get the full interview, whereas yeah. sometimes we can only use part of it here. So uh, sometimes we do pre-records and then we will take the highlights for you on the Power Hour and run the full uh, interview if you go into uh, Biz News Radio on Spotify and uh, you can also find iTunes. it on iTunes, yeah. uh, often on the website as well. Uh, but interesting, the 40 minutes 
of uh, of Nadia Swart uh, getting <laughs> the full treatment there. Bride Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, Nadja, well, there's your cue to bring us up to date with the news headlines. Cool. So South Africa faces a record year for power outages after the explosion at Madubi. And the blast said to occur on Sunday night during a process to find an external leak, according to preliminary findings. So at this point, we do not have details as to what it will cost and how long it will take to repair the generator, ESCOM has said in reply to questions. And the incident threatens to unravel any progress made by the utility to improve performance and avoid more power cuts that have crimped the economic growth in Africa's most industrialized nation. ESCOM pledged in March that a maintenance drive to improve performance of its aging fleet of coal-fired plants would start showing results from September. The incident at the Madupi station, which is being constructed at a cost of about 135 billion rand, demonstrates the utility's inability to prevent faults throughout the power grid. South African business confidence fell to a nine-month low in July after a week of deadly riots, looting and arson cost the economy 50 billion rand in lost output and imperiled at least 150,000 jobs. A confidence index compiled by the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry dropped to 93.2 from 96.2 in June, the lowest since October 2020. And the reading suggests a more muted effect on the overall business climate in the country after the collective actions of businesses and communities helped to contain the disruptions caused by the rioting and looting. Still, the spate of looting and destruction was a setback to inclusivity, growth and job creation and could compound and upset investor confidence in the long term. Economists see the damage from the riots shaving as much as one percentage point off economic growth this year. And then former Defence Minister Nosiviwe Mapisa Nkakulu has effectively swapped places with her replacement, Tandi Modise, with the ANC putting her name forward to take over as Speaker of Parliament. And the decision to nominate Mapisa Nkakulu has not been popular with opposition parties who say she's not fit for the position, as she's seen to have failed in her duties as Defence Minister during the July riots. So they see her as being elected as speaker, as failing upwards. The ANC said she is more than qualified for the position. But they would say so, wouldn't they? Justin Rowe Roberts uh, will bring us up to date with the markets today. Justin? The JSE All Share Index was flat at 68,600. In the currency markets, the rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 67 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 32 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 22 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,743 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will put you back approximately 27,000 Rand. Brent crude is low at $70 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will cost you 680,000 Rand. In the financial news, South Africa's fifth largest bank by market capitalization, Nedbank, released its interim results for the six-month period ended 30 June 2021. As has been a theme with all the big banks, All important financial metrics were far better than the prior period, which was directly affected by the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. To reward shareholders for an improved performance, Nedbank declared an interim dividend of 4 rand 33 cents. The share was slightly down for the day. Embroiled retailer Steinoff has just announced that it will increase its settlement offer by another 3.2 billion rand. The extra 3.2 billion rand is in addition to a separate increase amount announced last month. The total settlement offer now stands at around 25 billion rand. The share skyrocketed by 20% following the announcement, with Steinoff trading around the 2 rand level. 
Higher and tertiary education provider Advertech released an upbeat trading update to the market, indicating that bottom line earnings would be up around 30% to just over 50 cents a share for its half year ended 30 June 2021. This is in contrast to competitor Curra, who last week reported a 50% slump in earnings. Advertech shares were up around 4% on the day. Thank you, Justin. And still coming up in the program tonight, we're going to have more on the Nedbank story with Koki Koiman, uh, more on the Eskom story with Ted Blom, and then something that we haven't touched on much yet, the whole uh, CADA deployment controversy. And uh, Dr. Leon Schreiber from the Democratic Alliance uh, will be talking to us from the Zondo Commission. So plenty to stay with us for. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, it's a warm welcome to Magnus Haystack, who, as always on a Wednesday, can give us his insights. But today, a little unusual because you've returned from another country. It's a short two-hour flight, uh, Alec, uh, and the same COVID regulations. It's called the Western Cape. You might have, you might have, you might have heard of it. A lot of people live there, and a lot of people are going there. But I spent the last ten days in the Western Cape, and I must say, it's it's another country. And of course, the talk is independence, independence. Should we? Could we? How can we do it? Should we talk about federalism? And so, the, you know, in the evenings and over, over over dinner tables, that was the talk. No question about it. And these are not uh, unthoughtful people. You, you mix, we know you mix with rational and, uh, and often with the rich and the wealthy and those who've actually sacrificed to, to build assets. And they're thinking that independence is, is not a fringe discussion anymore. Definitely not. I think one needs to start thinking. And they asked my view on independence. And I said I need to sit down and study the whole issue from a from a from a financial point of view, from a political point of view, a geographical point of view, and historical point of view. So you 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 got to know your history before you try and be smart, and just blithely say, "Yeah, sure, we must break away and form our own country." I mean, that's not going to happen uh, very quickly. But there are elements of the discussion that needs to take place, and I think it's going to move into the middle of our political discourse especially in the Western Cape, where you've got the DA who said, no, they're not interested, that's not their policy stance. And the Freedom Front have said, we are in support of this. So there's a very interesting dynamic at play in the Western Cape. You want the DA to be uh, and remain in power, but they're not, or maybe they're missing something, that they're not representing what the majority of their potential voters today are perhaps thinking. So maybe the centre has moved and the DA needs to go and do a think tank on that issue, and the Freedom Front can come and can pick up a lot of votes because it is something that is being discussed, it's being canvassed, and and, and there's some serious, serious uh, smart people with lots of money saying we need to discuss this, we should. And as one person told me, we at least should try and, and do something to give the next generation some kind of a hope that there is an alternative of sorts. So that was an interesting thought, uh, line of argument, I thought. So it is something we're going to talk about a bit more. Uh, did uh, the looting and rioting in KwaZulu-Natal and parts of Gauteng 
have much to do with this change in attitude? In other words, was that brought up as part of the conversations? No doubt about it. I think you know this thing has been bubbling under for a very, very long time. And, and, and you recall many, many years ago, people would drive around with bumper stickers called with, with Republic of Hout Bay and Cape Independence. And now that we're not allowed to put on bumper stickers, you know, it's, it, it's moved from the fringes almost to the center of Western Cape politics. And after the riots in KwaZulu-Natal, the number of inquiries, the memberships of, of the various organizations, canvassing has jumped dramatically. And the support, the, the, the support has become very vocal, very outspoken. And people are saying, you see, that's, we, we do not want to be part of what is happening up north. And they're almost openly talking about up north as another country. It's another country. It might be ruled by the same government and same currency, but it's a different country in many respects. So, yes, they're openly saying that's not what we want for our children and our grandchildren. It's extraordinary how things are changing in, in this South Africa of ours. We had pre-94 where we had a, a pariah state uh, in many respects. Post-94, uh, initial euphoria uh, then chaos, as we've seen during the Zuma era, and it doesn't appear as though things are settling down just yet from the chaos into order, into a, a an, an existence or a, a functional state into the future. So perhaps uh, when you were talking about history, perhaps that's the way it's going to have to be, where you break down the country into smaller units. It certainly does seem to be have pressure for that in other parts of the world, but as a as a as a financial, uh, from a financial perspective, economic perspective, is it viable? Well, that's where the debate gets very interesting. People were referring to a country like, like Namibia. That's a, it's a, it's a very large country geographically, but economically a small one and, and not a lot of people. That, that's independent. And, 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 and people were talking about Eritrea and Sudan and, Catalonia and Spain, the very well-known breakaway um, issues in other parts of the world. And then someone said, look at Israel, what Israel did after the Second World War. Barren piece of land was taken away from whatever the, your interpretation might be of history and given to the Jews. And they built a fantastic modern uh, entrepreneurial state that that is just doing exceptional stuff. So people are saying they reject the argument that it won't work financially because people are prepared to invest in that part of the world and build it up from scratch again. Now, you know, that's that's the debate at the moment. As I said earlier, I'm not sure where I stand, but I have a lot of sympathy for people who are saying, give us a shot, give us a piece of land, give us the Western Cape uh, with a couple of harbors chucked in and we'll, we'll do the rest. As long as we have certain things like safety and security, Perhaps our own police force, our own ability to tax and and, uh, and not not be corrupting everybody and stealing tax money. That's the the thinking. Like we're trying to create a modern progressive state within the the greater South African state. Do you think it's passed beyond the point of no return, or is there anything that Ramaphosa and the ANC can do to to change that line of thinking? They can stop the line of thinking, and I think uh, at some point they'll have to address it in one way or the other. 
or it can get nasty. I mean, I'm not saying it can happen, but you know, you don't want it to become a, a violent uprising and, 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 and almost a semi-military breakaway. That, that I don't think will happen. But I think it's not something you can just totally ignore because it is an alternative for people who are saying, I do not want to leave South Africa, but I'd like to have some kind of safety and security in the way we build our communities and our societies. If that fails, unfortunately, a great number of those well-to-do people that you spoke about will pack their bags and go. They have the means, they've got the capital, and they will send their kids and they will join their kids. That's how it will work if there is no hope. So it's an issue of let's work on it. Maybe we can work a plan with government. Who knows? Politics is the, what do they say? It's the, uh, the creating the possible out of the impossible. Yeah, the art of the achievable. Yeah, that's, uh, we, the, one, that's the one I was thinking about. Yeah. We're going to be talking to Ted Blom uh, a little later in the program tonight, but uh, that explosion at Madupi, which has now accelerated the likelihood of another, uh, uh, well, bl- uh, inability of Eskom to meet the power supply, the power demand uh, of South Africa. Uh, more, more blackouts, more issues for industry, more difficulties for homeowners. But I thought, Magnus, that there was a solution on the cards that we were going to allow the private sector in there. It just seems to get bogged down. What's your reading of, of all of this? You know, it's now almost 60 days since uh, Pre- President Ramaphosa announced that private sector can start generating their own capacity. And I'm sure that's what you're discussing with Ted Blom this afternoon, the 100 megawatt deal. And everybody was saying, fantastic, and this is a step in the right direction. But there were one or two cynical voices saying, uh, it's not going to happen this fast. It's not going to happen in 60 days. That's not the South African way. I mean, you, you've got mining rights sitting there for, for 10, 15 years before they approved. It's not going to happen in 60 days, especially not with the kind of history of Gwede Mantash in his department. And be, lo and behold, what happened? It hasn't happened. Nothing has moved. The permits are not being processed. And, and there we have this great uh, announcement, the fanfare, the optimism, and we're back to where we were. Now, to come back to that explosion, one, one, there seems to be a pattern, and maybe you should ask Ted Blom, there seems to be a pattern every now and then, just as it starts getting better at these Eskom power stations, whether it's wage negotiations or coal prices or truck contracts, boom, there's an explosion of some kind. There's a definite pattern there, and I'm not saying it's the case, but one has to ask, is there not some kind of a sabotage happening uh, people within within Eskom who have the power and the means to do these things. I don't think it's just blown up by itself. It's a brand new station, and and uh, I think uh, there was something else going on there. Well, after what we saw in KwaZulu Natal with the sedition uh, followed by action on uh, on clear sabotage there. Uh, you, I guess you can't put anything beyond those forces who would like to destabilize the state. Well, we had the issue with the, with the, the software at, at all our ports and harbors. Uh, that's part of, it seems to be part of the process. Now, I don't think the, the public is entirely being, being, being given the honest and the truth there. And just as soon as that has been resolved, here comes a, a, an explosion at our brand new 
gazillion dollar power station. It, it, there's, a, there's a pattern there, and one, one needs to start asking questions about it. Today, the Zondo Commission hosted the president again. Uh, the focus there was on CADA deployment. And the interesting part about all of that, we'll be talking to Dr. Leon Schreiber, who's been working on it for the Democratic Alliance for quite some time now. But it, it does appear as though finally, finally, we're now getting exposure into this ridiculous and yet defended process where it doesn't matter how useless you are, as long as you are loyal to the party, you will be rewarded and put into a position of great responsibility, like a primary school teacher who's Minister of Defense and a primary school teacher who's Minister of Police and so on. Might there be hope eventually that uh, this has been given exposure, that, that it can turn around, it can change? You know, I, I, I was on a flight this afternoon when, when, when the president spoke, so I didn't see that. But at his previous appearance at the Zona Commission, he made it very, very clear that cadre deployment is official ANC policy. He does not see anything wrong with it. They're not going to change. And in fact, they're going to accelerate the process. He made no bones about it. He made no apologies. So to answer your question, Eric, I don't think so. I think the ANC has said this is our policy. Now, there's tremendous uh, uh, pressure and commentary and on business. You had your, your, your mysterious author uh, and, and highlighting this and other people as well. Cater deployment is one of the causes of our problems right throughout our society from top to bottom. And, and um, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's going to go away. There again, coming back from the Western Cape, I had to deal with official dim in my municipality where I live and I had to go and renew my license and uh, my driver's license. I couldn't sleep for two days thinking how bad it's going to be. I was greeted politely. I was there on my appointed time. I was in and out. I think it was nine minutes. Clean as a whistle, boom, gone. I mean, it's just another world. So there's no cater deployment in the Western Cape. And you can see the difference in attitude. You can see it physically. The streets are clean. Places are being repaired. You can see the money being spent on houses, on buildings that are being painted because people have, they want to turn it into an income generating asset, whether it's a restaurant or a shop or a, but you can see the difference. And what I heard from the developers that I, that I had a cup of coffee with, that that is going to be the primary growth area going forward, that triangle, Stellenbosch, France, Paul. And we're talking substantial developments from the from developers moving from Gauteng down, down to the Western Cape. So the developers are moving, presumably because there's demand for their services in that area and not too much demand for building new houses in Gauteng. Certainly nothing in KwaZulu-Natal, but uh, even uh, not that much more country. I'm not at liberty to name names, but we're talking about very substantial developers currently in KwaZulu-Natal and currently in Gauteng, who are at this point in time walking around looking for land, looking for farms, because I think they realize that the move is, is going to be down and they need to be ready with a product. And so the, 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 the places are buzzed with all the developments coming in that particular area. There might be other areas, um, you know, George is still very, very buoyant, but it seems to be that Boland is, is where people, a great number of people are going to end up coming from KwaZulu-Natal 
and from and from Gauteng. Magnus, we started talking about Cape independence. Let's finish there. If it were to happen, if there were to be a separate country that uh, were to be created in the Cape or in the area that the DA is governing and governing very efficiently, as we as everything uh, shows us, would that have an impact on property prices? I think so. You already, when you come down to the Cape. People say, wow, the property prices are high. In fact, we had this discussion with two people who were coming down and they were looking for properties to buy. And they were a little bit gobsmacked by the prices being asked. And I think just politely pointed out that the problem is that um, prices have just kept on going up in the Western Cape, whereas property prices in the Gauteng and the northern suburbs have actually declined in real terms so you can't get a decent price for your property in, 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 in Johannesburg. You can only get, say, four or five million for a, for a very nice home. And four or five million in, in, in the places like Valdivie doesn't buy you much. It doesn't even get you into Valdivie. So there is a 20 to 30% differential. And I suspect that differential will, will remain intact based purely on demand. I mentioned to you last time we spoke, we had a seminar, our company had a seminar there about a year and a half ago, and there were 100 people in the audience at Wallaby, and I asked them, I was curious myself, I said, how many of you guys come from Gauteng and how many are you local? And 70% put up their hands and saying, we're up north, we're in commerce, as they call them, the in commerce, and that was astounding. They're all from up north and they're all self-employed business people um, because you've got the fantastic schools there. There's the, 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 the you know, the, I think safety and security is better there. There are still crime issues, but people are saying, I'm doing this with my kids. I'm doing this for my grandkids. Dr. Leon Schreiber is with the Democratic Alliance at the Zondo Commission. Leon, good to be talking with you. Um, it's been a big day all round. Cater deployment is something that certainly we at Biz News have been banging a drum about for a long time, but not as long as the Democratic Alliance has been at it. And today you had, uh, again, the opportunity to, to put the president on the spot. Just uh, give us some background on, on why you've got such a strong showing at the Zondo Commission today. Thanks, Alec. It's great to talk to you um, in, in what's basically a live crossing here. Uh, we're still here at the old council chambers uh, where the Zondo Commission hearing is taking place and where President Ramaphosa is now testifying for a third day uh, overall. Um, this was a really momentous day, I think, uh, and, and one that has the potential um, to begin marking the end of cater deployment, which is, uh, as you rightly say, something that uh, the DA has been warning about uh, for over two, two decades now. Um, what happened today, essentially, is that the Zondo Commission um, acceded to a request that the DA had submitted at the beginning of the year, where we asked the Commission to uh, obtain uh, minutes and records of decisions taken by the Cater Deployment Committee. Our reasoning was that if you really want to test the influence of this committee on uh, the appointment of uh, individuals like Dudum Yeni, Claudio Motsuneng, Arthur Fraser, and the whole litany of people we've heard about in this testimony, then you really have to go and look and, uh, and see what was said and discussed. Uh, and in that way, you can actually then cross-reference it to uh, what President Ramaphosa, who was the former chairperson of this committee, um, says during testimony. Now, what emerged is that, um, according to the ANC, and very conveniently for Ramaphosa, 
the records between 2013 and 2018, when he was the chairperson, apparently don't exist. Uh, whereas the records from 2018... No, 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 no. Sorry, Leon. So from 2013 to 2018, when Ramaphosa was the chairman of the committee, those records have disappeared. They are saying they never existed. He says he never recalled uh, having minutes uh, put in front of him or being discussed, which is an absolutely fantastical thing to expect South Africans to believe. Uh, and, and as you say, I mean, it, it is just so incredibly convenient for the president that this happens to be the period where these records are not available. That is obviously something we will continue to probe further. You may know that we've got a court case pending against the ANC where we're asking for the records dating back all the way to 2012. And we're going to certainly try and use every mechanism we can find uh, to ascertain whether, in fact, it is possible that a, commit a committee of the ANC, which essentially influences appointments to the most powerful organs of our state, doesn't even do something as basic as keep records. It is, a, it is an outrageous thing if it's true, and it is an outrageous thing if it's not true. In, in politics, you've got something, uh, what's it called, deniability. Plausible deniability. Plausible deniability. That's, uh, that's very possibly uh, what's going on here. The point is that uh, when the president was grilled on uh, specific appointments like Brian Mulefe and, and some of the others at SOEs, uh, during this time when, when he was the chairperson of the Cadet Deployment Committee, he's now able to say, oh, he doesn't recall, he doesn't remember the discussion, he doesn't know if it came through the committee. Uh, and, and the absence of these records for this very specific time period gives him the plausible deniability. So, I mean, it is really a stretch to expect South Africans to believe that, that, that that's the period for which the records disappeared. I do want to say, however, that what is equally as important is the fact that the um, commission did, again in line with the DA's request, obtain records from 2018 onwards. Um, and what that shows, among other things, is that CADA deployment uh, has continued unabated. It has also basically um, blown up the argument that Ramaphosa and others have been making that uh, the deployment committee is not really that important because it makes these uh, soft, squishy recommendations. But when you look at the, the, the records that, uh, that the commission um, examined today, you'll find that, uh, as Advocate Pretorius said, it is in fact the minister who makes a recommendation and the deployment committee in many cases who decides who gets appointed. Now that is patently unconstitutional in our view. And I think the most shocking thing to emerge from today's testimony specifically was uh, from March 2019. Now, remember, this is two years after Jacob Zuma resigned. It's supposed to be two years almost into the reform agenda that the president was selling the country. But in, in 2019, the Deployment Committee of the ANC recommended specific names for who should be appointed uh, as constitutional court judges, as a judge to the Supreme Court of Appeal, and as a judge president in one of the provinces. Now, this is judicial capture. That is what it is. It is interfering in the role and the work of the Judicial Services Commission because it means that ANC members on that commission do not go into interviews with an open mind where they look for the best candidate, as they're constitutionally supposed to do, but instead they have an instruction that was given to them prior to the interviews even having taken place, uh, and then they execute the mandate or the, the thing that benefits the party, the decision that benefits the party rather than the country. Very, very explosive evidence and something that, that goes to the heart uh, of our constitutional democracy.
So what gets done about this? So you'll remember that uh, last time I rather ambitiously said that the goal here has to be to kneecap cater deployment. We have to get rid of this thing. What is important about today and why I think it could be the beginning of the end for the system is that it has laid bare uh, the, the inner workings of the committee at least uh, go, going back to 2018. Now what this does is it, it means that Ramaphosa and others who argue that this committee is not important, that argument is, is out the window. And it now looks, in my estimation, very likely that the Zondo Commission is going to make a recommendation which says exactly what the DA has been uh, campaigning on for many years, that cater deployment is a fundamental uh, cause and a foundational aspect of state capture. And as long as you have an unelected secretive committee in a political party, essentially deciding who is employed in the most powerful positions in the state on the basis of their loyalty to the ANC rather than to the country, state capture will not go away. And in fact, what I think we can say after today's testimony, especially the revelations around the uh, interference with uh, appointments to the Constitutional Court, is that state capture didn't end the day that Jacob Zuma left. I think it takes on other forms. It's, it's perhaps more subtle than it was with Zuma. But as long as the Cato Deployment Committee exists and exercises this unconstitutional influence, we will not have a capable state in South Africa. It is a view of uh, Ramaphosa and uh, and those who advise him that uh, they can create a capable state by deploying the correct people. Has there been evident, any evidence uh, since now that the records are open since 2018 that the appointments have been capable individuals? In other words, um, done on any form of meritocracy or is it just completely loyalty to the party? So, of course, at this point, it seems like the Zondo Commission is the only people who actually have the complete record. So we'll be working this week and next week to see if we can obtain uh, th records which we think belong in the public domain. And then we will be uh, checking for answers to, that, to those kind of questions. But I think if you look at the general tenure of the, of, of the, of the, of the testimony, uh, there's absolutely no evidence that cater deployment um, and limiting... The, the pool of applicants whom you consider to only ANC members is the best way to build a capable state in South Africa. Just think about all the highly qualified, competent people who are not involved in politics and who are not ANC members, but who could make a massive contribution uh, fixing South Africa's infrastructure. Uh, I'm thinking about engineers. I'm thinking about doctors in the, in the health department. These are the competent, skilled people we need in public service. And we're never going to get them if we keep limiting appointments to this tiny pool of ANC cadres um, who understand that their appointment is based on loyalty to the party and therefore that is what they uh, prioritize. So I think the president uh, is trying to pull the wool over our eyes when he suggests that you can have both cater deployment and a capable state. South Africans have lived the consequences of cater deployment for 27 years now. And I think it's time that we learned the lesson um, and we use this opportunity to end cater deployment. Uh, today, the DA has formally tabled also our end cater deployment bill in Parliament. There's now a piece of legislation on the Speaker's desk which will go through the parliamentary process and where political parties will have to put their money where their mouths are. Um, this bill will make it illegal to appoint someone uh, who holds a 
political office in any political party to the public service. It will demand that appointments be based on merit and will send, uh, and will send officials to jail if they are found to, uh, to uh, appoint uh, people who are not best suited for the position on the basis of political loyalty. Those are the kind of responses we now require uh, if we're going to use this opportunity to end cadre deployment. Well, I, I'm sure many members of the public would support that. Whether you get it through Parliament, though, is, is another matter entirely. But perhaps just to, to close off with, has there been any uh, reaction to, or rather in the evidence that was led today, did you get the answers to the 24 questions that the DA posed, which, uh, which we have been steering our business community members towards, very well thought through, and many of them uh, posed directly to President Ramaphosa? Was there any answer in, in the evidence today? Yeah, so, I mean, th- those are the questions that we submitted along with requests for the, the minutes to be, to be uh, subpoenaed, etc. So uh, it, it's, it's taken a long time uh, of DA pressure and work with the commission to get to this point. And I'm, I'm comfortable to say that some of those key questions have, in fact, now been answered. And I think that the uh, evidence leaders today have been really good. They've been sharp. The questions have been pointed. And I think it's been uh, much harder for the president to get away with the kind of vague answers that we saw in the past. So uh, it's, for the, it's for the commission now to, to come up with final recommendations and answers to those questions, uh, and we'll certainly be watching that. But what I would leave the viewers with is uh, the prospect we now face in South Africa is that we have a piece of legislation in Parliament that can solve this problem. We have a judicial commission of inquiry, which by all appearances is going to make a recommendation that cadre deployment is something that must come to an end. It is unconstitutional, and it has played a role in facilitating state capture. And I think if we can take those things together, plus hopefully um, a successful result for the DA in our court case against the ANC to get more and more of these minutes and make them public, that is quite a comprehensive campaign and, and environment in which uh, to hopefully make change happen. And I think uh, as much as uh, the odds have been stacked against us for a long time, uh, I think today is evidence that we're making huge progress on, on this difficult issue. And I would encourage South Africans uh, to participate, make their voices heard, and, and not lose hope. There's, there's a prospect here. We've got a window of opportunity to end cater deployment and start building a capable state. Ted Blom has been following the Eskom saga for, well, how long, Ted? How long have you been involved in, in seeing our uh, distracting uh, state-owned enterprise? Well, I've been, I've been inside, alongside, and underneath for about 40 years, but uh, intensively for the last 14 years. Shush. What does it mean, Ted, for load shedding? Because if Madupi has had this explosion, how much of Madupi is out and, and how, how compromised is uh, South Africa's power equation? Okay, let me just make an observation. Eskom's initial comment was that Unit 4 had been severely impacted, but that they did a visual on Unit 5, which had tripped because of the excessive vibration, and that seems fine. I hope to God they don't try and start that unit up. Uh, because the reason it trips is because of the vibration, and if there is excessive vibration, uh, that unit weighs more than 400 tons. Uh, you squash bearings, metal bearings to bits if there is untoward vibration taking place uh, in the foundations of that unit. 
And if there's any uh, de- uh, decay in the bearings, uh, and it, 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 uh, it, uh, it has a, a problem, uh, that unit, if they start it up, uh, will end up flying for many, many kilometers through there. In fact, it will fly faster than what SAA can do today. Uh, and we've, we've had two incidents of that sort in South Africa. The one is at the Vol Power Station many, many years ago. And I, if I, I stand under correction. I think that one flew 15 kilometers through there. Uh, and the other one was at Salt River Power Station uh, many, many more years ago down in the Cape. And that one flew also about uh, between 5 and 10 kilometers through there. So when those things go wrong, uh, you get uh, pieces of metal, large chunks of metal, weighing hundreds of tons, flying through the air. And there's nothing that can stop that. And it's only by the grace of God that nobody gets killed in those instances or aircraft even flying to these things because obviously uh, there's nothing you can do with those things on course. So um, hopefully they're not going to start up Unit uh, 5 until it's been properly uh, sorted out and surveyed and checked. Uh, as far as the impact on the national grid, we've now got two units uh, that are off uh, at uh, uh, notionally 800 megawatts uh, apiece. So that's 1,6 uh, gigawatts. Uh, last week, Eskom was running at about 35 gigawatts uh, capacity uh, available. Uh, the demand was around about 32 gigawatts. So they had 3 gigawatts on paper available. And uh, if you uh, take 1.5 off there, then you've got less than 1.5 gigawatts currently uh, as spare reserve. And, and I'm talking notionally because Eskom jumps with these numbers on a daily basis. But worldwide, the safety margin for a utility is 15%. Now, I, I don't know if you've got your calculator ready, but 15% on 30 gigawatts is, 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 is roughly 4.5 gigawatts. Eskom hasn't had 4.5 gigawatts spare reserve for more than 10 years, uh, and they're now floating at less than 1.5 gigawatts spare uh, capacity. So the, the slightest thing that goes wrong uh, that is of the quantum or size of uh, roughly one gigawatt uh, expects severe load shedding. And on top of that, with the ex- enhanced uh, uh, maintenance that needs to take place in summer to prepare for next winter, I, I can virtually guarantee you that we will have load shedding uh, between today and uh, next winter. Uh, in fact, uh, so much so, uh, Eskom again has been devious. They were short of 900 megawatts last night. They did load shed. I have evidence from suburbs that were load shed, and uh, the Eskom didn't announce it. Uh, so, uh, yes, we, we, we're back to devious behavior and lies and misrepresentations by Eskom. I've previously accused them. Uh, they complained bitterly about it, mm. but you know what? I call it the way I see it. What, what about the debate that's still going on uh, for allowing the private sector to build unlicensed uh, power generation of up to 100 megawatt from previously one megawatt. Uh, there was a lot of uh, unhappiness by the mining minister, mining and energy minister, Gwedi Mantash, about this. Eventually, the president had to force it through. But that does seem to be caught up somewhere. It, it appeared as though it, it might be something that would be helping South Africa to close this gap uh, that Eskom is, is struggling to fill. And yet, it's caught up there. Do you have any insight into what's going on? Uh, yes, Alec, uh, yes and no. Uh, I'm a bit in the same box as where you are, in that uh, that draft legislation notionally should have been published by now and now for comment, and it should have been ready. Uh, they undertook uh, that that would be uh, uh, sorted within three months. Uh, and uh, this is now about a month and a half to 
close to two months ago that the president made that announcement over overruling uh, Minister Mantash. Uh, um, uh, within the, 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 the government uh, or the ANC, uh, I don't want to get involved with the internal politics. It's, uh, it's a really, uh, from my point of view, a waste of time. Uh, but uh, it's obvious that there are hiccups within, within the decision-making body. And, uh, but it's really wrong uh, to penalize you and me and the country and our GDP uh, with the internal wranglings of, of the ruling party. Uh, and really, uh, my, my view, view to, to business is forget about government, do what's the right thing, and we can fight, we can fight in the courts later on. I've got legal teams available to take up that fight if, if it happens. And, uh, and then we're quite confident that uh, we have a good case to, to, to present uh, if, if it comes down to having a bun fight with, with, with uh, the, the Department of Energy and or the regulator. Uh, even if the nurse had their problems, uh, you know, they've lost uh, their chairman, they've lost their CEO, and they've lost another board member in the last uh, 12 months. And uh, so, uh, yeah, things aren't uh, what they should be with NERSA. And in fact, I've in the last uh, two or three weeks, I've I've accused them of collusion, collusion with ESCO on the 15% tariff increase that's just been implemented. Uh, they've all said yes, it's a court order. That's absolute nonsense. Uh, it was an agreement in a smoke-filled room, and between the parties, they agreed to make it a court order. It was not ventilated properly, and the public were not invited uh, to any legal process where where that was uh, vented. So, uh, again, I call it what it is. It's collusion. And uh, uh, we've got to the stage now where we know what. Uh, we as the point, we must understand uh, the, the civil service is supposed to service us, the, the people of this country, not the other way around. And uh, where we are being held up and held to ransom by these incompetent and, and, and wrangling fools, uh, I think we must just do what's necessary for the sake of the country and get on with it. Uh, business is good at making business and sorting out uh, 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 production and employment, etc. It's through the, the folly of government that we are now sitting with 3 million unemployed people because of excessive tariffs and, and corruption, which I've been calling out for 14 years at ESCO, and, uh, and uh, there's yet one person to go to jail. That's a disaster. Ted, is there any upside, and, and I mean this um, from the perspective of we have a new chief executive of Eskom. He's trying his best. There are other good people who work there who also appear to be trying their best. Are they just losing the battle against cater deployment and incompetence from government, or are they having any impact on what otherwise looks like a desperate situation? Okay, so, uh, I mean, I've got, at certain levels, very cordial relationships with Eskom. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm an Eskimite. I've been there three times, uh, and uh, I understand the organization, I think, reasonably well. Uh, but, unfortunately, uh, there is still a lot of catered development, and there's a lot of politics involved as well. Now, uh, you've exonerated or held up somebody as a good example of somebody who's trying to do good. Uh, let me put it on the record. In the last 60 days, the CEO of Eskom has signed what I've called a corrupt deal with Duva Coal Supply. Why? Because Duva Coal Supply Agreement uh, has as shareholders, Tebe Investments and Butter Butter Trust. And the first day that that coal agreement was implemented, after they took it over from South 32, the coal price was doubled. Ted Blom, thanks as always for telling it as it is and uh, for keeping up 
updated. I guess uh, that question is there any upside is certainly not been uh, not been in the affirmative. But well, uh, I guess at some point in time one will hit rock bottom and then we'll bounce back up. But perhaps Ted, perhaps the 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 answer lies in parallel to the state, parallel to uh, the incompetence that is that is being uh, visited upon the private sector and, and people just making up making their own plans. Certainly, that's the way forward as far as I can see. And in fact, I'm on the cusp of announcing a major effort to start generating power privately. I'm just waiting for the technology to come through. Uh, and, and then we'll certainly, we're roaring to go. And uh, I think there are many people who are roaring to go. And we're not talking about toy type of generation uh, capacity. We're talking about industrial grade stuff. So, yes, thank you very much. Koki Koiman is with Denker Capital on a day when we have seen financial results coming out from Nedbank. Well, I think we spoke when the trading statement was out, Koki, and uh, Nedbank share price reacted uh, quite strongly there. Are you expecting that once the analysts have looked at the numbers themselves that they will give the, uh, the stock even more support? Yeah, I think, I think it's had a good run. I think it's going to depend on quite a few factors now before it continues uh, in line with the other banks. And obviously, APSA are reporting tomorrow, and I think Standard Bank is next week. So we're going to see quite a few results. Um, I mean, as you say, this result was more or less in line with what we expected, except, uh, to my mind, operational expenditures, bit of a disappointment, grew at 6%. Uh, which meant that their pre-provision operating profit, <laughs> in other words, your operating result before bad debts was actually negative. So costs grew a bit more than income. But remember, income was still under pressure. So going forward, it's going to depend more on the economy. Uh, if you know what the government is doing and global economy starts pulling us up, confidence returns and there's more spending because that's very important for the banks. And then obviously where the interest rates go up. So stronger growth would mean higher interest rates, which is very good for banks. We've seen that in the U.S. at the moment as well. So as interest rates go up, the banks should do very well. And so NetBank the same. But NetBank is cheap. That's 1.1 times price to NAV. I think it can get to a 14 15% ROE return on capital, um, you know, end of next year so you know it's it, it's not expensive so um but it will only go further i think along with the economy cookie how does where does nedbank come in the whole setup in south africa we know that first rand's the biggest then there's standard bank uh then between nedbank and absa who's winning this banking war if you go back over the, maybe the last 10 years, we know that Capitec has certainly uh, yeah. been the star performer. But of the other banking members, how are they stacking up yeah. there? Yeah. Now, so if you look at the last 10 years, then you know, the losers have been sort of absent standard bank, um, mainly lost clientele to Capitec. First round initially lost as well, took action and are actually winning the space almost on most most fronts. That first round are uh, the leader. 
NetBank have always been the smaller bank, focusing more on commercial, corporate, especially property-based lending, and that's obviously been hit badly by COVID. So the, the price fell as much because of their big exposure to commercial real estate, uh, which, by the way, was really conservatively done, so really low what we call loan-to-value ratios. Uh, but so, so NetBank is the smaller of the four and I think what they've done post of mutual, which, by the way, I still think that's my thesis. I think that would be quite an event. It was quite an event for them, putting the team together, saying we're on our own. Now let's do it. And you can see there's some initiatives. There's more focus on technology, uh, on making sure the bank ranks high in terms of client service and, you know, your apps doing business directly, and also on the lower end of the market, retail lending, which is high and limb. So they're trying to rebalance a bit away from corporate to net interest margin. But the bottom line is your question. It's the smallest of the four banks. I think the clients that use them like them, but it's it's very tough for them to, to actually grow now because uh, you've got to fight for market share. And... Um, so they're trying to do that with client service, but they're the smallest of the four. It's the it's the it's the hardest battle for them to pull clients away from uh, from the big guys, the other three. I suppose because we're seeing so many new entrants into this space, Discovery Bank uh, has been very aggressive. They're probably spending more on advertising than the others put together, or so it's certainly so it seems. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and then yeah. uh, just uh, recently this week, Bank Zero opened its doors. Well, not really because it is a virtual bank, but. How are they doing? How are the challengers, as they call them in the UK, these challenger banks, uh, doing, taking on the big four? And particularly, uh, is, is NetBank being the smallest of the big four uh, more vulnerable than the others? Yeah. Look, so your, your, your so-called fintech or challenger banks globally all start more or less actually, funny enough, with Capitec started um, yeah, on the on the retail lending. You recall Capitec in 2001-2003 was really a, a bank lending to higher risk clients. We had made very good margins and it provided the service to those clients that other banks weren't. Slightly different where your fintech banks all over the world are using newer, smarter, cheaper and better technology to um, attack banks and on the weakest spots. I mean, some of them has just been um, credit card fees or um, Revolut on the um, money settlement market, you know, and, you know, where bank margins have been too high, service has been bad, so that's where they're going. Uh, Zero, Michael Yodan and the guys originally tackled this as a transaction bank for so-called SME uh, corporates, smaller and medium enterprises. So smaller businesses who normally have to pay more for bank charges because they haven't got negotiating power. And so they've said, okay, we're going to have Bank Zero. We're going to offer you um, bank services at a very low rate. And because their technology is new and better, uh, they can compete with the other banks. But initially, that's very small. Uh, we see that globally, uh, very few of them are profitable. 
Um, and although the numbers are growing, Brazil, we're seeing it's actually the fintech bubble of the world, uh, Brazil at the moment. You're seeing like 80%, 90% more client growth, but most of them still not profitable. So you've got to branch out into – so what you're hoping is you get a client base, you're growing a client base, and then you're selling other bank products to that client base and, and so grow. So uh, discovery as well. It, it cost discovery, I think, must be four times more than they originally projected to get the bank going. And then you've got your big advertising spend, as you say. Um, so it's, it's not cheap, but, yes, it's about momentum. If they can continue growing the client numbers, then they'll become a challenge. But each time it's just in very small areas and then they grow out into, so NetBank, uh, because NetBank is really commercial uh, lending and corporate lending, um, that's normally the last area where your fintechs or your challenger banks go. They have more attack on the retail side or on the smaller business side. It's so interesting. I know from my own perspective, I opened an account with Discovery and it wasn't, it wasn't hours later, uh, that Investec were all over me like a rash, telling me how they could improve their offering or, or how I hadn't been using the offering that, that I could. And having a look at what they are offering, it's very, very hard to move anywhere else. And I, I guess just that's a, a survey of one, but I, I'm sure that many people are faced with the same challenge as an SME. Now do we even look at Bank Zero uh, when we've got Investec who can actually do business banking for you as well? And, of course, you've got great transactional banking from FNB and then cheap banking from Capitec. So you end up with all these bank accounts, and one day you you want to consolidate them all. It it doesn't seem likely that – we are going to, that would be consolidated in one of the challenger banks because I suppose they haven't been here around, yeah. around long enough. So how do they get their business? And it's a, it's a very serious question, um, which might seem a little flippant, but many of us, uh, who are in business and have got bank accounts are, are only trying these new guys with a second or even a third bank account. And at some point in time, you've got to say, hang on. Uh, you know, it, it, life is complicated enough. Why not simplify it and just bring it all back to investing? Yeah. So, number one, um, the consumer is the real beneficiary of all of this that's happening. So, your bank clients are certainly getting better banking at lower costs. So, there's no way about that. It's very good for the consumer. It's very good for inflation as well in terms of at least that small part of inflation. The bank costs are contained because there's more competition. And so, you're forcing your large banks. We see that globally as well. Large banks are just forced to think much harder about profitable activities, about their margins, about becoming more responsive Well, thanks for being with us uh, this Wednesday, the 11th of August edition of the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Alec Hogg, and from our team here uh, at Biz News, we wish you adieu and look forward to being back in your company again tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.